Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My first guest has just joined us on the line. Veronica Pardo is the CEO of Multicultural Arts Victoria. Um, As the name suggests, Multicultural Arts Victoria celebrate the work of migrant artists, but more importantly, they also make art as a response to bigotry and intolerance. So using art, um, I guess, uh, Veronica, using art not as a weapon, but art as a tool to kind of support and celebrate a kind of diverse, pluralistic society. Yeah, maybe a window, Richard, you know, a way for people to really engage deeply with the experiences of our our reality as a pluralistic and, and diverse nation. Now, one of the latest ways that uh, MAV, Multicultural Arts Victoria, are doing that is the Shelter Commissions Program, which uh, has allowed you to support a number of artists and the first wave of works in the Shelter Program have been announced. But all up, you've commissioned 45 different artists to create work. Is this uh, shelter, is it a direct response, to example, to COVID-19, to to give artists not only something to do but give them the support with which to do it? Oh, totally. So I suppose, you know, as an organisation that puts on events, as so many arts organisations do, we were looking at our 2020 program and thinking, well, okay, none of that's going to happen. So how do we, you know, that that word that's completely overused at the moment, but how do we pivot in in this moment? And, uh, you know, our motivations were... I suppose, multiple. One is recognising the tremendous economic pressure on artists at the moment, the fact that, you know, most work has disappeared. And so how do we put resources in the hands of artists? How do we allow artists to um, to reflect on this moment, particularly diverse artists for whom a lot of the effects of COVID-19 are actually disproportionate um, compared to other community members. So, you know, reflecting on the rise of racism, for example. And then and then also, as we started at the beginning of this interview, kind of talking about, you know, the window into these lived experiences. So exactly how are people and how are creatives experiencing this moment? What do they want to tell us through their art making that enables us to engage with those experiences, but also recognise that whilst we may all be in this together, our experiences will not be the same. And it's really important as we are designing these kind of public policy responses that we hear from creatives about what are the implications of particular, you know, approaches. And I think what I've got in my mind is the, you know, incredible and, and I think, you know, challenging events of, of the last couple of weeks with the, lock, the hard lockdowns of the towers. We need artists and creatives to reflect on this moment so that we can better plan for what's ahead. Now, before we 
talk a little bit more about Shelter and the artists who've been announced as part of the first wave of commissions. I wanted to pick up on one of the things that you said. Certainly, we've, we have unfortunately seen a horrible rise in racism because of COVID-19, um, fuelled in some parts even by the US president, who's been calling it a, kind of a Chinese virus. We're seeing people being blamed. We're pe seeing people being kind of abused in the streets because of their cultural background, as if they're personally responsible for spreading the virus. How can art respond to that sort of racism? How can an organisation like Multicultural Arts Victoria can it respond to that kind of specific targeted racism that we've seen in recent months? Well, I think that what art does is really engages the imagination around what does it mean to really value our diversity? And I think what, what we find through these processes is that it shifts people from being in a kind of, you know, what we call like a non-racist state, like most people would like to say that they are not racist, but perhaps it's not enough. Perhaps what we need to do is shift into an anti-racist state. And, that, and, and I think that artists have got uh, a very particular role to play in shifting people from kind of rhetoric into action because... Because the work, I think, um, often um, comes at you in, in a different way. It sort of disarms. Um, and perhaps we're used to hearing certain messages in a very direct way. But what artists do is kind of creep in under your skin. And so it begins to challenge this notion that, that we cannot just simply be passive observers of what is going on in society. That if we want to be, if we want to live in a society that deeply values and appreciates it's, you know, it's First Nation history and reality, um, and, but also the diversity that comes from our multicultural societies, that we need to do things that are going to preserve those values, that we actually need to be in an action state, not simply observers commenting on how, you know, terrible the rise of racism is. And so I think when you invite artists into that conversation, they, uh, you know, they have a way of engaging, um, I, I think, uh, the broader community in in perhaps a different way that some of those direct messaging just simply isn't getting to. So back in, I believe it was April, that you opened expressions of interest for the uh, Shelter Commission's program. Uh, at that stage, I believe you were looking to commission about 40 artists. You've ended up commissioning 45 artists, some of whose works have now been announced and others uh, are being rolled out in the kind of uh, over the coming weeks. Tell us about this kind of first round of artworks that have been announced because you're now then going to be releasing additional works every fortnight through until September. We are. I mean, we've... we've for this round of commissions, we've chosen 45 artists um, who are all, who all identify as culturally diverse or First Nations. And if you know people um, sign up to our social media platforms, they'll get messages um, showing this amazing work. It's multidisciplinary. It's um, it's made by um, incredible artists who I think. Some of, some of whom are, are yet to be discovered in terms of our cultural, cultural landscape. So I definitely think people should hop on hop online and, and have a look at these artists. Um, there's there's you know incredible works like you know um, uh, look I'll, I'll just you know even talk about a couple of them because I, I've been so moved by some of them. Um, there's a particular work that um, uh, that I really loved. Um, uh, which is by um, the artist Tane Temanu McRoberts. Now, he's made a beautiful um, traditional woven work, 
which um, really speaks to his experience of grief and love over the loss of a, of a, um, a really respected elder from his community. So, you know, so thinking about the way that, um, that this particular artist incorporates, you know, traditional practices into contemporary, into, into a contemporary work that really speaks to his experiences of this moment is, is incredibly moving. Then you have, you know, um, artists like um, A. Yamamoto, who is an incredible sound artist, She's made a short film, and that really is, is basically set in her kitchen, and and takes us through the experience of the changing seasons. And so, um, I think so many of us resonate with that as we've seen the world, um, you know, through our kitchen window so much more than we normally would. You know, incredible artists. I think that that um, are really worth engaging with. Each of the works have got. Um, are presented online, but with some information about the, the work itself and the artist and a reflection on how the work um, speaks to this moment. So uh, it certainly does provide an insight into, um, into the experience of COVID-19. And I think we've been so overwhelmed by the feedback from the artists about this commission's program that we've, we've decided to go again. And I think uh, we're about to announce an, an, a new set of commissions. So I'm hoping that this um, that we'll be able to continue this work throughout the, you know, the rest of this year to give many more artists an opportunity, one, for employment, but two, to tell us, um, you know, about their experiences in this moment in time that I think... Um, and, and, and what's fascinating about it is how hopeful, how incredibly hopeful some of these works are. And it really speaks to that kind of paradoxical you know, situation that we all find ourselves in, that within our, our kind of, you know, most vulnerable moments, we are all so strong and resilient. I think that's what I take away from these works more than anything else. My guest is Veronica Pardo, the CEO of Multicultural Arts Victoria, and we're talking about the, the first wave of the shelter commissioning project, which, as we've heard, is supporting artists directly during the, the kind of cultural pause, cultural lockdown created by COVID-19. Seven artists have been announced, uh, well, have been, their work has been revealed as part of the first round, and every fortnight uh, through until September the 30th, Multicultural Arts Victoria will be revealing the work of more artists. If you want to learn more and see and experience some of the works, which, as Veronica has said, range from film and music uh, and visual art and poetry. Uh, I was delighted to see uh, works in there by the poet Tui On, whose work I'm familiar with. Uh, jump online, www.multiculturalarts.com.au. Click on the events tab and you'll find all the details about the works that are being revealed as part of Shelter, the commission's program. I thought I would play a track by one of the artists who's been commissioned, Maddie Colville Walker, who's a, a First Nations woman uh, and her song Vain. But just before we play that track, Veronica, uh, given that there will be more uh, works being announced. People can obviously, as you said, jump online, jump on your social, uh, MAV social media channels to learn more. Um, tell us a little bit more. You're planning to commission more work. Tell us a little bit about that and when you think that opportunity will be announced. Yeah, well, the next round of shelter commissions will directly 
um, speak to the experiences of those who recently had those hard lockdowns in the towers. So we're reaching out to artists living in those towers to say, you know, how can we resource you at this moment in time to really reflect on that experience or other experiences that, you know, that are relevant that, you, that I think, you know, we want the wider community to engage with. Again, there is, you know, there's going to be formal processes of kind of review and analysis about what went on, but we need to hear from artists. We need to amplify those voices. So, so our next shelter commissions will be particularly dedicated for artists living in those circumstances. For more information about the shelter program, as I said, jump online, www.multiculturalarts.com.au. Uh, you can also check out uh, the Facebook page, MavArtsAU, uh, on Twitter. Um, you can also check out at MavArtsAU. And, of course, there's an Instagram page and a YouTube channel because Multicultural Arts Victoria are across it all. Veronica Pardo, many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. Just before I let you go, would you like to tell us a little bit about... Uh, Maddie Colville-Walker, the artist whose song Vain we're about to hear as part of the Shelter Commission's program. Yes, absolutely. So Maddie is a proud Yorta Yorta woman. She uh, lives in northern Victoria and she's been working um, with Mav on a range of different projects for a number of years. She's an incredible star. Um, uh, she's, she works as part of a, a, a terrific group up in Shepparton called the Herd Instinct, who are incredible singer-songwriters and definitely worth looking out for. But this particular work um, is really, I think, uh, is, it has come out of this experience of being in quarantine and having the time to sort of um, think and listen and reflect. So I really hope you enjoy the work. This is Vain by Maddie Colville-Walker and Veronica Pardo from Multicultural Arts Victoria. Many thanks for joining us on the program this morning. Terrific. Thanks so much, Richard. Bye. Triple R. My next guest for the morning has just joined us on the line to talk about his exhibition, Black Crow, which is being exhibited virtually via the Koori Heritage Trust. Dane Sansbury-Smith is the artist uh, and his... Uh, uh, his work uh, draws on his uh, Narunga and Trurulaway kind of culture and heritage. Dane, thanks for joining us on Triple R. Thanks for having me, man. It's an honour. Ah, very great pleasure to have you here. So tell us a little bit about kind of, uh, I guess, kind of your work itself before we get into the, the exhibition in detail. Am I right in thinking that this is your kind of debut solo exhibition? It is, really. It's my first time I've ever exhibited my art anywhere. So to go straight to a solo exhibition is kind of—it's a big thing, really. Yeah. Uh, any kind of nerves, any kind of trepidation about kind of opening yourself up for criticism by putting your your art out there, or just a more just a sense of excitement that finally kind of you get your moment in the sun. More so excitement. Uh, I think you know art has always been my practice, and it's been my way of translating and expressing stories that you know my parents and grandparents and aunties and things I've read even and I've, I've spent you know the, the past 10-15 years painting for family I've given artworks to all this you know most of my family have my artwork hanging in their house and my house is covered in artwork my kids rooms and we we do this together all the time and I it's yeah it's just excitement you know it's just something that I finally stepped into doing and I think I've always wanted to do it so to be able to do it right now is yeah it is really exciting. And it's also, I have to say, pretty cool that for you, art is part of life. It's not something that you kind of, I don't know, um, 
pigeonhole off and work on art kind of that art is a job or something it's something that clearly it sounds like something that you have a passion for and something you've been that has just been part of who you are for a long time yeah well i think that was the concern it becoming a job i didn't want it to become that i didn't want to feel like i was clocking in to do the artwork that has always been a natural process for me and for the kids to kind of enjoy it and take my time to work on pieces like one of the artworks in there I, st- I started sorry in about 2007 and my cousin has the, the the same canvas and the similar painting and to see 10 years later or 12 years later that that artwork how different it is it's the same kind of painting but it's different and yeah it's 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 it's, it's quite amazing to see that process unfold so in terms of the work, if people want to have a look at the exhibition, because as we said, it's a digital exhibition because of COVID-19, so people can jump online, kuriheritagetrust.com.au and click on the exhibitions tab to kind of under what's on to see uh, some of your the, the works that are actually presented in the work. But talk to us about, I guess, the rather than the works themselves to begin with, we'll talk about some of them in detail, but talk to us about kind of why you wanted to begin painting in the first place. Can you remember kind of was there a moment where you thought this is an idea that I can't express any other way other than putting down as an image? Yes, I think it was like my grandmother has always painted and I've got you know some of her artwork that she's gifted to me and I've always watched her paint stories and to sit there and ask questions. What does this mean and what is that? It's been like a I guess it's opened those conversations, so I wanted to continue that, and I've got you know, thousands of books and thousands of stories, and just wanting to put that into an artwork that um, would open those conversations, or I could pass on to family, and I feel it's like a, a responsibility of mine, really, to, that this is how I share those stories, this is how I kind of um, share that culture and continue it, and I, you know, it's probably the most important works that I, I, I most likely do. And in terms of your culture, as I said, um, uh, kind of Narunga and Farulraway kind of uh, kind of uh, mob, which means uh, you're drawing on stories from two very different places in Australia. Kind of Narunga uh, from what is now called South Australia, uh, and kind of also uh, Palawa ancestry from Tasmania, yeah. Palawa culture and heritage as well. So, kind of how different are the stories and the and the traditions from those different parts of Australia that you're drawing on to create your artworks? Um, very different, very similar in ways. Um, so on my mother's side, on Naranga, uh, we go diving all the time. The men go diving and um, a lot of the artwork is about butterfish, which is, you know, the Naranga are kind of known as the butterfish mob. It's not a totem, but it's just it's a, a staple food. It's one of the, the favourite foods of, of our people. Um, but then in Tasmania, the women were divers for the crayfish and all the seafood and stuff like that to, to see... It's it's something that I kind of got to navigate through, really. So when I go home to um, South Australia, all I want to do is dive. And then I took my diving gear to Tasmania when me and the family went a couple of years ago. And I got in the water, and instantly I didn't feel safe. And I felt uncomfortable, I felt weird, and I didn't, I didn't dive. I didn't do the whole time I was there. I just felt like it wasn't appropriate for me to do. And I constantly find those two conflicting, I guess, practices and cultures. And with this art, this is just uh, a blend of both, really. So in the artworks, you'll see hints of Palawa history and from all the way culture and, and the same 
you're, you're getting Naranga and, and all of the other the, the culture that's mixed in into one artwork because that is who I am. I'm not one or the other. I feel like I'm both, and it's my responsibility to pass both to my kids. And you're also kind of using a mix of different mediums on the canvases as well. So, yes, you're using contemporary acrylics, but then you're also using white ochre and charcoal, for example, as well. So kind of literally blending kind of cultures and traditions uh, in the process of making the work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've I've always enjoyed collecting ochre and and painting with the kids. Usually, you know, I put it through their hair and we we paint each other up. We we play around because it just washes off easily too. And then over the past few years, I've started uh, blending them and mixing and experimenting with how to make them work together. And it was something interesting, actually. Um, while I was in the, the Gibson Desert, because I'm as a part of, as well as being a, an artist, I'm a program manager for an organisation called Sharing Stories Foundation. When I was out there on a digital storytelling program, one of the old people pulled me aside and said they were amazed. They were so excited that we were there to um, put this massive artwork and create an animation. So there was a small team, an animator and an audio engineer, myself, and we were turning a painting into an animation. And, old, and the old fellow said, it's amazing that you guys are here because this is what we need to do to move our culture forward. We need to follow the, I guess, the technology. Because back in the day, my old people were telling me that the can- a square canvas and acrylic paint is modern technology, and this is how we need to move our artwork. But, you know, you go back 50 years in the desert out there, not, those paintings weren't really on the canvas. You know, they were on the rocks and they were on the trees and that's how they painted and just to, to move with it and to blend, I think, you know, it's the way of adapting and surviving, really. Well, it's all part of... Uh being part of a living, ongoing culture as well, that kind of regardless of whichever culture you come from uh, and whether it's your culture, whether it's my culture, it continues to evolve and your practice is just part of that evolution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, kind of uh, stories from your grandmother and so forth and you've also mentioned your kids. Are you teaching your kids kind of these kind of uh, stories and also teaching them how to paint as well? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. I um, from my grandmother on my grandmother's on both sides, and aunties and uncles, and I put them all onto canvas. And I've got all of these books, and um, I I paint for my for my kids, so then they can recognise these artworks. And I can't wait. I'm hoping that I get to walk them through the exhibition, so they can see that outcome. But yes, it's definitely passing on to my kids, and I've got cousins and nieces and nephews that. Um, I pass on to them too because it's not just about my kids, it's about the whole community and the larger family of, of, you know, that I have, that is my responsibility to pass this information on to. Now, looking at the works online, and as I said, if you want to check out uh, Dane Sansbury-Smith's work, you can go to kuriheritagetrust.com.au to see the virtual exhibition Black Crow. Just click on the What's On uh, and then Exhibitions tab and you can see the work. Uh, you've mentioned, for example, the butterfish, which is depicted there. There's kind of uh, kangaroo and willy wagtail as well. The works, Two of the works that are really striking are the black and white works, uh, uh, Dindu and Beera, Sun and Moon. You've kind of created a what a uh, two works kind of side by side. Kind of, how long uh, do these works take to create? Because they're they're complex works and they're also very very striking with just the simplicity of the black and the white. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Like I, I think 
I've divided the, as you can see, one canvas is divided into two sections. And I could, I reckon, probably a good eight hours to sixteen hours just to do the dots on one canvas. It, it takes, you know, one night I might get half the dots done, and I'll sit up late, and then I'll put it away and continue it in a couple of days. So it's a lot of work that I've, I can't even keep track of, to be honest. It just, it, the time just falls away. How, in terms of the actual act of making art, um, I know some artists who describe it as a very meditative process and they will kind yeah. of lose themselves, kind of in themselves, and kind of in, they, that they, but they also then have the challenge of having to find the, the mental headspace and the time to get into the zone in which they create. Kind of, <laughs> is the act of creation, does it come easy to you or is it also something that you, it really has to be the right time, the right place, the right mood? It has, yeah, it's it's definitely that. That's exactly how I feel. Like with the two kids around, I can't focus on um, on creating. I can't get into that mind space where my hands are flowing, and I am meditating. And that's exactly how I feel. And that's why I was concerned about it becoming a job. That's why I've always, you know, for however long, it's always been my space to get away and express myself and to create something and get lost in that time. Um, yeah, that's definitely how it feels. And but then at the same time, it's I, I I can sit there with the kids and work on their stuff and and paint with them for hours. But in terms of you know these actual artworks and creating something, it is a meditative space that you get into to kind of flow and the, and it just happens. It, it's you know you're not really thinking about what the next line is going to be or how it goes. It's just it kind of just your hand is just going and I'm just watching my hand just paint away. Dane Sansbury-Smith's exhibition Black Crow is now showing at the Koori Heritage Trust online at kooriheritagetrust.com.au until Sunday the 15th of November. And fingers crossed, uh, once all this is over uh, and the Koori Heritage Trust at Federation Square can reopen, uh, people can go in and see the exhibition physically, including hopefully you yourself. Um, The opportunity to kind of, I guess, to, to not be able to see the work, not be able to show it off and show people around and, and talk to the works uh, in the gallery must be a bit disappointing, but congratulations nonetheless on having not only your first solo exhibition, but your first solo exhi- uh, your first exhibition ever, Black Crow. Yeah. Just before I let you go, talk to us about the title of the exhibition and its significance. Uh, the, the Black Crow, it, it started off as the production company that, because I also work on films and audio work, and it's a, it's a, t- a personal totem, the Black Crow, for me. And it's it, it's a metaphor for the crow guiding and leading my kids. My kids listen to the crow. They talk to the crows They're at the front of my house here constantly. And for me, it's a metaphor. And the black crow was guiding my kids through all of these stories for them to inherit it all and then for them to continue it. And the exhibition Black Crow, as we said, on now until Sunday the 15th of November. Jump online, kuriheritagetrust.com.au to see Dane's artwork. Dane Sanfrithis, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. No, thank you very much. Woo! <sighs> That's right, Triple R. My next guest for the morning has joined us on the line from Diversity Arts Australia, which is Australia's key organisation for cultural diversity and racial equality in the arts. I'm joined on the line by Diversity Arts Australia's Executive Director, Lena Nalas. Lena, a very good morning to you. 
Good morning to you too, Richard. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Uh, it's kind of, I hadn't quite realised, but a bit of a focus on the show this morning. I had Veronica Pardo from Multicultural Arts Victoria uh, on the line earlier this morning, for example. And a little bit later, we're talking about the uh, kind of many diverse artists uh, taking part in the exhibition Home, presented by the City of Greater Dandenong. But I'm particularly pleased to talk to you, Linda, because Diversity Arts Australia have just launched an anti-racism toolkit, create the officially called the Creative Equity Toolkit. It's a, a practical guide to encouraging and creating greater cultural diversity in the arts. Before we unpack the toolkit itself, is it pretty fair to say that the arts industry in Australia has a bit of a whiteness problem? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair thing to say. <laughs> I think that there's a uh, that um, that it's still very it tends to be quite kind of monocultural. That there's still a lack across all areas, and this is research that Diversity Arts has shown in research that Diversity Arts has done, but also in research that the Australia Council and Screen Australia have done, that there's an underrepresentation of um, people of colour or ethnocultural migrants um, in across all areas, from leadership to um, you know to producing to uh, to participation, there's, there's been that under-representation. And, I mean, if we put that kind of kind of lack of representation into numbers, to just it becomes really quite stark. I mean, 39% of the Australian population, more than one in three Australians, are from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. But of all the, certainly just if we look at the major cultural organisations in Australia, 51% of them have absolutely nobody at leadership level from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. So there's a, a stark difference in the makeup of Australia generally and then the makeup of leadership in the arts. That's right. And that, that figures from our report, Shifting the Balance, that we released last year. And if you look, if you drill down into those figures in some areas, like performing arts, there's only 5% um, of uh, culturally and linguistically diverse or ethnocultural diversity at the leadership level in, in performing arts organisations, for example, 5% of leaders. And that includes, look, you know, um, across all areas of leadership from board, judging panels, you know, um, CEOs, uh, senior managers. So it, it actually, you know, kind of is, is much lower in some areas. And, yeah, more than half of the organisations had no, no one from, you know, from a, a non-Anglo um, migrant background in the leadership role. And one of the problems that creates then is that even when people are well-meaning, they may consider themselves uh, an ally, for example, uh, and and they want to see more culturally diverse work being created by their companies and by other companies. But we know that there is a kind of an unconscious bias that a lot of people have, which means when you are hiring somebody, you tend to hire somebody who looks like you, who supports and reflects your cultural values, for example, which means that uh, we're not seeing a change in the sector, uh, despite the fact that many, many organisations are publicly stating they want to see change. So, Consequently, the creation of the Creative Equity Toolkit, it, it's been designed really as what? As a practical guide con containing kind of steps by which organisations can actually follow through on their rhetoric. 
Yeah, that's right. Because we know, like, firstly, I should mention that this is a partnership between Diversity Arts Australia and the British Council. So it's a knowledge exchange because we share a lot of enough similarities between Australia and the UK um, in terms of leading practice and, um, you know, kind of barriers as well that there's, you know, that we wanted to kind of share that and, and, and actually share more global kind of, um, you know, uh, case studies and examples and tools. When we were consulting with the art sector a few years ago, um, including major organisations, they kept saying, we know this information is out there, but we don't know how to access it. We don't know how to kind of collate it all. And, and you know, um, it, it kind of does require curation. It requires quite a bit of time to, to kind of look at all of the resources and the reviews. And, and for us, um, we wanted to also make sure that we would put, you know, um, we'd curate a selection of resources for each of the topic areas, but we'd also break it down and make it as actionable as possible for organisations because we know that it can be really dense and complex for many organisations and we want organisations to to be able to access, um, you know, clear calls to action, you know, clear advice, to, to see, you know, to have practical tools that they can use. Um, and we really were kind of aiming, you know, aiming to be able to give them the tools they needed to do the work of change. And it is work. So we've, we've also got, you know, we've also got some of the theory in there because, you know, our, our kind of belief is that you you can't just go straight to action. You're going to have to have agreement as an organisation. You're going to have to sit with a discomfort um and, you know, agreement with the organisation about where you're at and what needs to change and um, and move as an organisation because quite often we see change happen because an individual comes in who brings it in, but that change isn't really lasting. When that person leaves, you know, the, the systems haven't changed. The organisation is obviously not in agreement about the need for that change. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, and often it's not changed systemically. So we've kind of... Um, you know, we've got a little bit of both in there, I would say. Um, but, yeah, very action-focused, but not, and certainly not dumbing anything down or taking um, stuff away from, um, yeah, we're trying to build the knowledge and also, you know, allow people to have informed conversations or provide the tools they need to help them have those informed conversations and feel kind of empowered to have them within their organisations. Uh, and you're right, like, if you don't have that leadership at the organisational level, even when people have really good intentions, you quite often, you know, it's about that diversity of perspective as well. You know, it's not just about that person bringing in and representing every person from a non-white or non-Anglo culture. It's about bringing in that diversity of perspectives, cultures, ways of seeing things, um, and even, you know, ideas around excellence or ideas around... You know, what is contemporary Australian art? You know, like questioning questioning those things because quite often that they're the things that lock out, um, you know, kind of diverse stories or diverse art forms or, um, you know, just take, taking those for a given and not challenging that. And so, yeah, the toolkit's kind of designed to help people to, to challenge everything about their organisation, to, to look at how they could reflect on their policies and make those changes. And this is how, for example, another organisation has done this and this worked really well or this didn't work really well. And, um, yeah, so that's a, 
a little bit of a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> now, if uh, while we're talking, if uh, if listeners would like to check out the toolkit uh, for and. I would urge anybody working in an arts organisation, whether at local government level, such as a local gallery, uh, whether they're working in a major cultural organisation like Malthouse Theatre and Melbourne Theatre Company, or at any level of arts, or, arts organisation in between, uh, then creativeequitytoolkit.org is the website to go to. Uh, and you can see that once you're at the website, you can browse through topics and action. So if you want to take actions or look for resource related to programming and commissioning, for example, there's a section there for you. Alternatively, there's a the other part of the website is resources and research so that you can have case studies and details uh, to give you more background. But I'm particularly interested in the fact that you've taken such a, a proactive step because, yes, it, officially this is its title is the Creative Equity Toolkit, but I've heard it described by a colleague at Arts Hub as the anti-racism toolkit for arts organisations. How important is it that this really is being proactive? It's not just about supporting cultural diversity, it's about challenging racism directly. Yeah, I think what's been quite exciting about this particular moment in time, for the first time in a long time, we're actually allowed to use the word race and talk about racism and anti-racism. And I've been in this space for a long time. I did my first anti-racism campaign in the, in the 90s. And it's kind of quite exciting that we're that these you know that we're having these conversations in the public domain and people are talking about systemic kind of racism and you know um and, and I think the reason why we're saying you know it, it is about anti-racism is because being anti-racist is about being active and it's not about just being passive and describing you know something that is um but actually it's about kind of consistent and committed and targeted action that you're going to take within the organisation. So for an organisation, so, and it's not just about the individual, like it, it isn't, it, it's often just reduced to the individual and the person just needs to, you know, to, to be a nicer person or be a more tolerant person or a more accepting person. But actually it's about the systems that we operate in and it's about not just accepting those, like I mentioned, you know, let's look at, um, the kinds of ways that we 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 judge work and we determine whether it's going going to be accepted or part of our exhibitions or our program. Let's look at the canons that um, that that we that, that are normalised in our in our cult in our culture in Australia, and let's question those. Um, let's look at the historical um, context in which we operate, and yeah, so so that's the work of anti-racism with the toolkit. It is about kind of um, challenging all of those aspects about the way that we operate as an arts sector, as a screen sector, um, reflecting on those and seeing how we can actively um, affect change and that to us that's, that's actively being anti-racist. And I think it's a constant thing. I like that... Um, I don't, Ibram X. Kendi and, and others have, have kind of said that it, it has to be an active process. And, and, it, and it's something that, so, you know, you can't just, okay, I, I, I've achieved it now. I can relax. It's cool. <laughs> We're here. I don't need to worry about this. No, no, it's, it's, it's ongoing. It's ongoing work. Um, and that's something I didn't 
realise would be the case back in the 90s when we did our first anti-racism campaign. But uh, some years later, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is going to be consistent, continual work. One of the ways to assist with that work, uh, the Creative Equity Toolkit, as I said, has a a large section of resources and research, uh, which is... Some of it has take is taking work that already exists out there and just putting it in a place where people can browse it and find it easily. So, can I, if you go to that section of the website, uh, the creativeequitytoolkit.org website, for example, you can the first couple of articles that you can look at, 100 ways white people can make life less frustrating for people of colour, a list of suggestions for being an ally, uh, and 13 opportunities to address unconscious biases in the workplace. So, the, the sheer fact that kind of uh, you're providing kind of easy access to these articles so that people can read them and work through them uh, instead of kind of taking all of five or ten minutes to hunt them down themselves online. Um, uh, again, this is these are practical tips and exercises and practical guidelines to not just talk about diversity in the arts, but to, to actually actively pursue it as a goal for organisations and providing uh, examples of how other organisations have gone about doing it. Yeah, that's right. And we've got, uh, yeah, like, you know, actions under each of the topic areas and we'll be rolling out more topic areas in the coming months. Um, We just felt this was the absolutely perfect time to kind of get this out right now and, um, and also, you know, because of the discussions that are happening in the public domain but also the other work that we're doing with Creative Victoria, who also supported this site, um, you know, with our, another program called Fair Play, that this is just so complementary. And, yeah, so we've got, you know, for example, under programming and commissioning, you know, how to audit your program, how to conduct a racial equity impact assessment, how to diversify, you know, you know your decision-making team, you know, how to widen your talent pool, how to uh, build a collaboration, how to set a diversity target. And then under that, we've got, you know, a more broken down, you know, series of actions. And I think um, it's really important to note that it is curated. So we have kind of done the hard work of, and we're still doing it, and, you know, um, kind of going through hundreds of articles and, you know, a lot of research to kind of try and find the best, examples and case studies and also to break it down so that everything has a description um, but it's just really inviting like we want to make this as accessible as possible and invite people in rather than just you know because I love reading lists and I'll go out and find the books but not always and most people don't have the time or won't do it we didn't want to just give people a big list go and read these you know go and read these 50 reports we wanted to kind of distill the information for them and kind of give, you know, this is what this report focuses on. Here's some reviews, here's some pros and cons about taking this approach. And if you want to read the report in full, here it is. Or if you just want to read a brief about it, here it is. Um, That kind of approach. I'm really hopeful that not just arts organisations, but many other uh, organisations, whether they're working kind of in the broader cultural sector or uh, beyond, uh, will be taking a look at the Creative Equity Toolkit to kind of help them kind of 
evolve their organisation so that uh, all organisations in Australia, not just in the arts, reflect the, the cultural diversity that we see in the street every day, rather than the cultural diversity of 30, 40, 50 years ago. For more information, jump online. CreativeEquityToolkit.org is the uh, project run by Diversity Arts Australia, together with the British Council that we've been talking about. And if you want to learn more about Diversity Arts Australia itself and, for example, some of the training they offer, their podcast and other events, diversityarts.org.au. I've been chatting with Lena Nullis, the Executive Director of Diversity Arts Australia. Lena, thanks so much for your time on, on the program uh, today and congratulations to you and your team for the Creative Equity Toolkit. I really hope that it has a great and uh, lasting impact on the art sector here in Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you. And yeah, I hope so too. Um, and I know it will. <laughs> Thanks so much. Enjoy great the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 